in the early part of August 1997, a group of about 30 or so people gathered at a piece of land at the corner of Highway 97 and Tatton Station Road near 108 Mile House. They formed a circle like the people in this photo for a dedication prayer for the construction of a church building. And as they gathered, the pastor said to the group that he hoped it would be a place that people would know God's grace to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then he added, may the altar be a place where people give their lives to Christ. Through the years since, many people have indeed done that. They have experienced God's grace and forgiveness and come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior at 100 Mile House Baptist Church. This in a community that had been a major center for a New Age cult. Now, I'm sure that a similar prayer was offered only in Swedish when First Baptist Church Matsqui was planted 110 years ago. And that is still our prayer for Abbotsford Baptist Church. It's why God brought us together, to be a place where people give their lives to Christ. This is a place where many people have first understood that their sin separates them from a holy God and that Jesus Christ is our only provision. And through him and no other, we receive forgiveness and are saved, rescued from eternal separation from God, rescued from condemnation, growing in our faith, taking steps like baptisms that show that we are serious and we want to be known as the followers of Jesus. Because he is our remedy. He is our rescuer, our redeemer. And through Jesus Christ and no other way, we have abundant, joyful, eternal life. <sighs> wow. Uh, you know, many of us have also known the joy of family members making that uh, faith commitment in Jesus. But for some of us, seeing someone come to faith is a bittersweet experience. On, on one hand, we're, we're overjoyed for them. On the other we know that there are others in our families sometimes who have never taken that step or have rejected Jesus outright. And if it were in our power, we would do almost anything to see them come alive to Jesus. We would do almost anything for them to know the abundant life of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at a celebration in the very last part of Romans chapter 8, uh, last time we looked, uh, the chapter began by saying there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, break the chains, break those cords that bind us. Uh, it ended, verses 31 to 39, that we looked at last week, with that assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And Romans 8 is this, this mountaintop, this peak of assurance that if we're in Christ Jesus, we never have to fear condemnation. As a follower of Jesus, it is such a joy to know that. Oh. And Paul's joy was, was obvious as we read through that chapter. But that was chapter 8. Now, chapter 9, Paul's joy has disappeared. Chapter 9 starts out sounding more like a lament than a hymn of praise. 
And Paul is deeply concerned. He's deeply concerned for his own people, Israel, because the great majority of them have not responded to the gospel. Israel, who God in his grace chose from all the people in, on the earth to be his people. Israel, who God even called my son, is lost. But how can this be? I mean, aren't they God's chosen people? Yes, they are. Well, so then, Pastor, are they in or are they out? What's so special about God's special people, Israel? That's where we're going in the next three chapters in the book of Romans. And today we hope to answer this question. In the light of the gospel, how and where does Israel, God's son, fit in God's plan? I'll bet you thought the title had to do with Jesus, but it's not. How does Israel fit in the master plan? So let's turn to the passage today, uh, right at the start of Romans 9, and we'll read it together. First five verses. Normally, when we think of the Apostle Paul, the first thing that comes to mind is Paul the teacher, the instructor of doctrine. But here, listen to Paul's heart. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Amen, indeed. You know, after that wonderful celebration of God's faithfulness to us in Jesus, described in chapter 8, you'd expect that the theological part of Paul's letter was over and that he'd get on with the application part, because that's Paul's normal pattern for teaching. He would uh, have this, this doctrine or teaching about, about Jesus and, and God, followed by instruction on how to apply it to our Christian lives. And, and it would be filled with lots of practical examples. Now, he will pick that up. That application part will pick up again in chapter 12. But for now, three chapters asking the question, what about Israel? Here, here we have three chapters that show Paul's heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters. What does Paul want them to know? Well, right from the beginning of Romans, Paul has set out to, to show them and to prove that the gospel of Jesus is the gospel of God. It is the good news sent by God 
from both the Old and New Testaments. It's part of the master plan revealed throughout the Old Testament, and it's for all people, Jewish or not. So when he said in Romans 1, there were some Jewish believers in that church in Rome, but it was mostly made up of Gentiles who had put their trust in Jesus. That burdened Paul. The Gentiles, the Gentiles had embraced the gospel eagerly, but most of the Jewish people had not. And there was a, a real disconnect to him. Here are Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters who had missed it. They didn't see the gospel as the fulfillment of God's promises to them in the Old Testament. How could that be? Didn't God promise to send his Messiah to Israel, to glorify his people Israel, and to bless Israel in the kingdom that was to come? Yes. Well, then how could this promise be fulfilled in a Gentile church? And the question in the minds of his Jewish audience is, what about us? Where did our promises go? If they embraced Christ, they felt as though they were turning their back on all the Old Testament teachings. So here's the primary question. Does the gospel replace the promises of the Old Testament? And the answer, no. No. But if the Jewish people are going to embrace the gospel of Jesus, they need to understand that the gospel is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, not their replacement. If they put their trust in Jesus, he says, they are not turning their back on their Jewish heritage. Well, <laughs> you know, the Roman Gentiles, the non-Jewish the non people in that church, and, and us for that matter, need to understand that the Christian faith has Old Testament roots. And that was Paul's message right from the start. That was Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe, whether they're Jewish or not. And the Jewish people need to understand how they fit into that plan, how they fit into God's plan. But the Gentiles, us, we need to understand that their and our spiritual blessings are the result of what God has done through his people Israel. And Romans 9, 10, and 11, this may, sound, this may surprise you, are not about Israel. They're about God because they show that God is faithful to his promises. Now we can see uh, all through Paul's letter, you can see it, but you can really see here that Paul's anticipating this criticism uh, from the way he began the chapter. He went out of his way to stress that he really is concerned about his own people. He says it in a positive way, I speak the truth in Christ. And then he says it in a negative way, I'm not lying. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> but then he says his, his sincerity is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. In the a literal reading of the original language here, uh, what it says is, 
my conscience and the Holy Spirit witness together in this. But because Paul has been preaching to a lot to the Gentiles, a lot of his fellow Jews saw him kind of as a traitor who had turned his back on his own people. And that simply was not the case. Paul had great, great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them. Why? Because Israel was not saved. His sorrow was so powerful that he wished he could be cursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. The word for cursed here, the Greek word is anathema, and it describes someone who has been excommunicated. In the New Testament, it refers to someone who is excluded from God's people and therefore under condemnation. Paul just, he has such a pastor's heart for his people. And, and he's not the first guy that we've encountered like this. That's what Moses was like, too. In Exodus chapter 32, uh, God called Moses up the mountain to meet with him. But as you know the story, and we don't have all the scripture up here, but when Moses came down, he found the people engaging in gross idolatry. But even so, Moses pleaded with God not to destroy them. And then here's, here's what he said there. He said, the next day Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, idols of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Whoa. Moses identified so strongly with his people that he was willing to be blotted out of God's book along with them. And now here in Romans, Paul identifies with Israel to the point of offering to become cursed for them on behalf of them, if that were even possible. The reason is obvious. Paul knows that Israel, Jew, the Jewish people who have, not who have not responded to Jesus, are cursed and cut off from God. And he was willing to give his life in Israel's place if it meant they wouldn't be cut off. But Paul as great as he was, and no one else for that matter, can give their life to atone for anyone's sin. Because Jesus has already done that, and he was the only one who could. The point here is that Paul was in agony at the thought that having been given all the spiritual promises and benefits of being God's people, his own people, Israel, don't get it. They don't understand, and they haven't responded. Well, what were the privileges and promises they had? To make his point, he lists them. He lists these promises and privileges they enjoyed as God's people. First of all, adoption. We know from Paul's other letters 
but the followers of Jesus, it, the Bible tells us we are adopted, brought into God's family. Isn't that great? Is that what he's saying here? Well, if it was, then why, why all the anguish over Israel's fate? Um, the phrase here that he actually uses is adoption to sonship. That, that's Paul's way of summing up the, the, all the Old Testament teaching about Israel as God's son. The nation as a whole had been set apart from all other people for two reasons, for blessing and service. Ah, here's the catch, though. To be a blessing and to serve the nations. Not for the blessing they would get out of it. To be a blessing and to serve the nations. Our adoption gives every believer in Christ all the rights and privileges of, of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. But God's adoption of Israel gave the nation all the rights and privileges within the old covenant. But don't make no mistake, though. Uh, those blessings did not include salvation for all of Israel. If they had, Paul wouldn't have been agonizing over the situation. God's adoption of Israel emphasized his ongoing care for them, despite their unbelief. And there were numerous examples of that unbelief all throughout the whole the Old Testament. So adoption was the first. Second, they, the divine glory, God's presence with them. Israel had the privilege of God's presence. In the exodus from Egypt, God was with them 24-7 in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the temple was dedicated, when they built the temple in Jerusalem, 2 Kings 5 and 6, the glory of the Lord, the, the, what they called the Shekinah glory, descended with such a weight that the priests could not even stand and perform their duties. And, and yet, even the very presence of God hadn't prevented the people from sinning. And ultimately, God withdrew his presence for almost 400 years from the time of the Babylonian captivity, the exile, until the birth of Jesus. The glory of God departed from Israel. They had a word for it, Ichabod. The glory has departed. Can you imagine what it must have been like to experience the glory of God and then have the glory leave? Absolutely devastating. Adoption, the divine glory. Third, Israel had the covenants. The covenants God had made over and over with them. He made a covenant with Noah after the flood to never again destroy the world that way. He made a covenant with Abram. He said his descendants would be as numerous as grains of sand on the seashore. He made one with the whole nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. That's the Ten Commandments. He made one with King David to establish David's line forever. 
and that there would always be a descendant of David's on the throne of Israel. No other nation had those everlasting covenants that Israel enjoyed. And then the fourth, they also had the receiving of the law. What a privilege. They possessed the law of God. And no other nation had that privilege either. Even though God allowed the law to produce death in them through sin, and it does the same for us, our sin, the law itself Paul wrote, and we had this a few weeks ago, the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. Because it talked about God's character, God's qualities. Uh, go back to Romans 7 and see the argument. Fifth, they did have temple worship. The sacrificial system and the worship associated with it was as important to Israel as the law itself and and any deeds of love and kindness that they would do. God gave them a way through that system to atone for their sin until the time of Jesus Christ. They also had the promises that were given to Abraham and the patriarchs. Uh, among them, repeated over and over, even beginning actually before with Joshua, I will be with you. How, how many times? I'm going to have to go back and count how many times in the Old Testament God said that. But it was a promise that endured. Not only did he have the promises to the patriarchs, but one of the other privileges and blessings was the patriarchs themselves. Uh, literally, it says the fathers. here. God gave these promises to them, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And they were valid, not just for them, but for all their descendants. Well, what could Israel, the Israelites legitimately expect to inherit then from these founding fathers? They thought it was just the land. But here's the last privilege and promise. The Messiah. <laughs> the Messiah. Because from the patriarchs is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. In the original Greek again, it reads... From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Jewish word Messiah, or translated Messiah. That last one was the greatest blessing of all. God promised Israel the Messiah. They knew that. They knew the Messiah would come from the people of Israel. But, but notice what Paul adds here. That's the filling. Look what he adds here. At the end of that phrase, the human ancestry of Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. This is one of the few verses in the New Testament that specifically placed states that Jesus is God. John 1, 1 is another one, of course, but there's not many. So, despite having all these promises from God, Israel was missing the mark. They missed seeing that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Messiah. And as a result, they were failing to respond to him. And that's what distresses Paul and gives him unceasing anguish. Because Paul knows the joy and the blessing and the life that awaits them if they will come to know Jesus. And he also knows where they will end up 
if they fail to respond. I, I can't help but uh, seeing a parallel in our culture. If you're over, say, 50 years old, chances are you grew up going to church. Uh, perhaps you even went to a church that believed the Bible is God's truth, even better. Church, church attendance was common until the 1970s. It was the cultural thing to do in Canada and the U.S. At the midpoint of the 20th century, our laws and morality reflected more of God's character than they do today. And I realize I'm, I'm making a broad generalization here, but I believe it's true. Many, many people who grew up hearing those promises of God have rejected him, rejected the promises, or treated them with indifference. What's the fallout of that? As a consequence, their children have grown up without even hearing about the God of the Bible. Bible-believing parents and grandparents have unceasing anguish over their children and grandchildren who don't know and follow Jesus. And so we can really identify here with Paul's emotional appeal. But there's an urgency in Paul's writing. He wants his fellow Israelites to know Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Messiah. Why? Life was just as hard then as it is now, maybe worse. Life can be cut short through illness or accident. And it can happen to any of us. Our missionary Randy Hoffman knows this full well, having spent 44 days in ICU with COVID-19 this, this March and April, uh, coming very near to death. He's been home for six weeks now, but he's still dealing with the effects. He wrote this week that he can now finally go all the way upstairs from his downstairs and all the way back down. That's how weak it left him. And he knows how close he came to dying. It distresses us when a friend or a loved one dies and, and we aren't confident that they've ever placed their trust in Jesus. The sad thing is we can't change any for them, anything for them at this point. But we can do something for those who are still around. We can pray for them and we can ask God for their salvation. And, and when and if God gives us the opportunity to engage in a conversation and tell them what Jesus has done for us, we, we jump at it. We take it. God still has a great love for Israel. Some of Israel, some people have recognized that Messiah has indeed come, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus, and they've surrendered their lives to him. They now know the joy that we know. And Paul sees a continuing role for Israel, just 
It's just not the role that they thought. The gospel, the new covenant between God and us, is a continuation of God's dealing with his people. God will fulfill his promises to his people, Israel, through Jesus Christ. One further observation to close. Cultural influences can prevent us from seeing what God wants us to see. If you grew up thinking you were God's chosen, for example, and that that, that settled it, you didn't have to worry, you, you might fail to see your need for salvation through Jesus. If you grew up in a culture that says, all roads lead to God, which is more common here, you may fail to see the need for salvation through Jesus. And yet we know that just as God loves Israel, he, he loves all these people around us. So pray, as Paul says, that their spiritual eyes would be opened to the one and only, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. He is the greatest blessing of all. Let's pray. I'm so grateful to you, Lord, that you made yourself known to us, to me. And I'm so grateful to, for preserving uh, through the scriptures, Old Testament and New, what we need to know for life, joy, happiness, peace, and salvation. And for all of the Old Testament that points forward to the time of Jesus and shows the fulfillment of all those things in Jesus. And to the whole New Testament Lord that points back to those covenants and those qualities and who you are, the God of both covenants, both our testaments. Lord, thank you for this opportunity that Paul has given us to, to, to go deeper and understand how it all fits together. Thank you, Lord, though, that we rejoice. There's one God, one Savior, one baptism, one Lord who is all in all, Jew or Gentile. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.